I'm Dean Olsher, and you're listening to The Really Big Questions. It's the podcast where we ask, that's right, the really big questions. And today, we want to know why humans make music. In 1997, the linguist and evolutionary psychologist Steven Pinker ruffled a lot of feathers when he argued that music is not an evolutionary adaptation. Instead, he used a metaphor that keeps coming up. Pinker said that music is not essential to survival, it's a confection that exists only for pleasure. In other words, auditory cheesecake. And that seemed to insult a lot of people, right? Yeah, people think sentimentally about music. They don't think uh, rigorously about it. And they want it not to be insulted or dissed. They want it to be elevated and esteemed. And so it seemed kind of disrespectful to music. You know, I, I think there's nothing wrong with cheesecake. But, <laughs> and I think there's nothing wrong with the idea that we listen to music because it gives us pleasure. But somehow this uh, sticks in the craw of a lot of people who study music. Why? Because uh, they, they want to uh, valorize music. They want Why does music. evolutionary purpose do that? It doesn't. Uh, it shouldn't. Many things that are evolutionary adaptations are by no means desirable, like genocide. Uh, you could quite easily see why this could serve an evolutionary purpose. And many things that are uh, among the things we value most in life are clearly not evolutionary adaptations, like reading, which only developed quite recently in human history and certainly is not wired into our genome. People think of evolutionary adaptations as what is closest to the human essence, what we're most proud of as a species. And that's just a mistake. Did you foresee the firestorm that you were going to ignite when you wrote that line? Uh, no. I, uh, this was uh, a couple of pages in a 500-page book. And uh, if anything, since there is such opposition to the idea that anything in the mind is a Darwinian adaptation, I thought saying that there are some things that are not Darwinian adaptations would go over well. People hate the idea that sexual jealousy or revenge or differences between men and women are evolutionary adaptations. The common cliche is that these are just so stories, they, they can't be proven, they're just uh, parlor games, except when it comes to music. They're Everyone is a Darwinian, everyone's an adaptationist, everyone desperately wants music to be an adaptation. Why do scientists speculate about the evolutionary purpose of this or that when it seems as if it's an unanswerable question? Oh, it's not an unanswerable question. Is, is it an unanswerable question that the evolutionary function of the eye is, is a vision or that the evolutionary function of the heart is to pump blood? But then can you bring it to the level of hypothesis and test it? Not really, right? Sure you can. How can uh, you test whether well, well, let's, music how, serves a purpose well, or not? Well, let's go back. How do you test whether the function of the heart is to pump blood? I mean, that's not a just-so story. It's right. not a, We observe it in action, right? We observe it in action. Well, more to the point, we know what a pump is. We can do the engineering analysis and say that if something is a pump, it's got to have valves, it's got to have a pressure difference on opposite sides of a barrier. Right. So we can observe a heart in action, but we can't observe the origin of music among humans. We can observe music in action. None of us said anything about observing the origin of the heart when you did the engineering analysis that showed that, it, that its function is to pump blood. It's not like we studied cavemen's hearts. We didn't need to. It's the goodness of fit between an engineering analysis done independently of uh, knowing the details of the system you're studying. Then you turn to the system and you say, how good is the fit? Has your idea about music as auditory cheesecake evolved since 1997? Yeah. Well, there are a number of uh, interesting findings that uh, there are very few animals that uh, will entrain their motions to a musical rhythm. That is, you know, basically dance in time to the music. 
You know that some birds do it. Some birds do it. Go to YouTube and uh, put in the search box, uh, Dancing Cockatiel. Right. And Ray Charles. Exactly. Uh, Well worth doing just for the amusement. Uh, You'll find that it tends to be animals that engage in vocal learning, that copy environmental sounds and incorporate them in their repertoire that tend to rock or uh, dance in time to music. And a lot of animals that you might think would do that, like our cats and dogs, don't. And that seems to uh, kind of elevate language as a uh, possibly a necessary condition for music. Uh, You know, whether a particular language is reflected in a particular musical idiom is a uh, an additional question to whether language as a species wide gift is reflected language in general. A friend of mine who's a linguist had a hypothesis about why uh, French rock and roll music is so awful. Uh, that, you know, many cultures have contributed to rock, uh, you know, England, Ireland, United States, Jamaica, but not France. And uh, his theory is that whereas English is a stress-timed language, we have a pretty strong rhythm and we squeeze a lot of syllables into the strong beats. French is a um, syllable-timed language where every syllable pretty much gets an equal tick of the metronome. So we say university, and in French you say université. Uh, And this hypothesis was offered not completely seriously, that that strong rhythm of the English language makes it fit with the beat of a rock song better than uh, French does. I would extend that to all of popular music. Mm -hmm. I think that English-speaking world owns popular music, and every part of Europe that's not English-speaking is inferior by a long shot. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of cultural... uh, I'm hoping to ignite a similar fire story. Pinker believes that music is a byproduct of language, and while there's a popular idea that music is a kind of language, it's actually missing one of two essential ingredients. While music can have its own syntax, it doesn't have a semantic component. Semantics is meaning, syntax is patterning or order. The syntactic aspect of language is just the, uh, the patterns in the ordering of units, of words. Um, and so you can have sequences that are syntactically well-formed, but have very little in the way of semantics. The most famous example is Noam Chomsky's sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. It's in Bartlett's famous quotations to illustrate the point that clearly obeys the grammar of English, even though it's very hard to get a meaning out of it. In contrast, if I say, oh, skid, crash, hospital, you can get the meaning out of that. You know what I had in mind, but it doesn't conform to the rules of English syntax. So moving then from syntactic language to music, can music be a kind of thought process? Well, it would be a stretch. Music certainly does have a syntax or at least a given musical idiom or, or genre. Semantics, it's uh, you know, not much. It's certainly impossible to narrate an actual plot using uh, melody alone, where uh, a man falls in love with a woman, but she's involved with another man because the other man is better connected and has comes from a more respectable family. And, you know, I can spin out using words, all kinds of tales and stories. You just listen to a piece of music, and if you don't hear the lyrics, you'd have no way of guessing that. So are you saying that in order to qualify as a thought process, it requires the semantic part of language? Uh, I don't think I would insist on that, but usually we think of, when we use the word thought, we imagine that it's got some sort of content. I don't want to sort of split hairs over what thought is, but... Well, because for me, it's not splitting hairs. When I listen to a Beethoven string quartet, and it goes on for 45 minutes... I'm engaged with it as a thought process. Mm -hmm. I feel that even though I know not to think about words and specific imagery, he's making an argument. Yeah, there's certainly uh, intense uh, mental activity. Absolutely. That's That's why we enjoy music so much. But the interesting thing is that it's 
very hard to pin down what it is. Well, this is why I like the idea of anticipation as the essence of musical language, because music does play on our expectations and can either defy them or satisfy them. And we know that dopamine is released through this expectation and anticipation. I completely agree that the motivational system, driven by dopamine, might be what music is tapping that gives music such a pleasurable quality. Now, often researchers will say then, if that dopamine system is being tapped, that's evidence that a biological drive is at play, that there is an evolutionary purpose. No, that's exactly backwards. You, You snort cocaine, you stick heroin into your veins. That engages the dopamine system, and that's precisely not an adaptation. Now, certainly the motivational system driven by dopamine is an adaptation. It makes us seek food and water and sex and partners and stimulation. Once we have that system, then there are back doors into it. There are ways of picking the locks and stimulating it by other means. And I suspect that's what music is doing. It's a squatter. Yeah, it's a hacker. (laughs) I like that. That makes me like it better. That's Steven Pinker, the evolutionary psychologist and author, and this is The Really Big Questions. On our next podcast, we'll talk again about music. We'll hear from a neuroscientist who studies people who get chills from listening to music. And we'll spend some time with the McCulloch Sons of Thunder. You can ask us your really big questions on Facebook, and you can find out more about why music moves us on our website, which is trbq.org. Our podcast is produced by Flora Lichtman and Chris Julin. The Really Big Questions is a project of Sound Vision Productions with funding from the National Science Foundation. I'm Dean Olsher.